I was going to try and use a lectern, but I think it's a bit risky with the uh, level of wind. I wonder if you've noticed that increasingly our culture places a huge emphasis on our individual freedom to choose. I think more than any generation that's gone before, uh, we have the desire and the opportunity to organize the world around ourselves, our ideas, and our preferences. But instead of making us more content, this leads to an enormous amount of dissatisfaction. At the most trivial end of the scale, you go to the supermarket to buy something as basic as butter, and you're presented with 20 different options, yet you still get annoyed uh, when they don't have the one that you normally get. We want to control every aspect of our lives, and we try to achieve that control through consumerism, through cleverly engineered Facebook feeds, exercise, cosmetic surgery, and so on. Uh, we even want control over life and death, and that plays out in all sorts of ways. We want the designer life. Uh, we want life to run according to our script. We want things to go our way. The problem is, we don't have nearly as much control as we like to think, and we certainly can't expect God to follow our script. We can't expect God to endorse our every whim and desire, to fall in line with our plans. And so God is often perceived as a hindrance. He inhibits our ability to choose. He's an obstacle to our autonomy. He gets in the way of our freedom. We want a God who meets all our expectations. And if he doesn't, well then God will just have to go. That is the point that we have reached in the Western world. But in a way, it's not so different from what occurred in Jerusalem just over 2,000 years ago. Now, ancient people didn't think of themselves as individuals quite in the same way that we do. It wouldn't have been so much a case of, this is who I am. It would have been much more a case of, this is who we are. At the time of Jesus, the people of Israel had a very clear script in their collective conscience. They knew exactly how things were supposed to go. They knew what they wanted God to do. The, the expectation was clear. They wanted God to send his Messiah, a conquering king who would march into Jerusalem, seize the throne, and send the occupying Roman legions packing. A Messiah who would free them from the tyranny of Rome and restore Israel to its former glory. They wanted a Messiah who would fit in with this plan. Then onto the scene comes Jesus. Now, now even in our culture, we can recognize signs and symbols that point to certain events. So if you'd been in a coma for several months and you woke up and saw a decorated tree on the ward, you would know that it was Christmas. Likewise, if you awoke to find a collection of chocolate eggs by your bed, you would know that it is Easter. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, everything, all the signs and the symbols pointed towards this being the Messiah, the coming King. Firstly, there were all Jesus' miracles performed over a three-year period, and especially this recent event where he had raised a man from the dead. You'll remember that at Jesus' command, Lazarus, 
who had been dead and in the tomb for four days, walked out alive and well. That happened in Bethany, only a short walk from Jerusalem. News of it spread like wildfire. Surely Jesus must be God's long-awaited Messiah. And now Jesus was heading to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, the time when Jews celebrate God liberating them from slavery in Egypt. During Passover, Jewish messianic expectation would have reached fever pitch. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. You might say, well, if they're expecting a conquering king, surely a war horse would be more appropriate. But no, uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, See, your, comes, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. This was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, another sign confirming their hopes and expectations. The people were waving palm branches, just as we did on the way around uh, the lake, and this is very significant. I wonder if you've ever heard of the Jewish festival Hanukkah. It's when the Jews celebrate the rededication of the temple after it was desecrated by the pagan king Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, you'll know that there's a a 400-year gap between the last book of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and some very significant things happened during that period, including the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, this maniacal king was eventually overthrown by a Jew named Judas Maccabeus. And Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem as a conquering, victorious king, the rightful king. And all the while, people were waving palm branches. In Jewish thought, the palm branch uh, was a phenomenally powerful symbol. It meant that the rightful king had at last arrived. So here's Jesus, the miracle worker, entering Jerusalem on a donkey at the Passover with people waving palm branches. This could only mean one thing. God was about to rescue his people. The king, the Messiah, had come at last. Now the Pharisees, they were beside themselves when they heard Jesus' followers shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They told Jesus to rebuke his disciples. In other words, shut these people up. You see, the Pharisees had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. They were comfortable. They were well respected. They held positions of authority and they recognized that any sort of uprising would be met with the iron fist of Roman military power. They feared that Jesus would trigger a revolt that would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Pharisees would lose any power they had. In fact, they'd probably lose their lives along with everybody else. It's interesting, isn't it, that the religious leaders were the most cautious, cowardly, and blind. And actually, there's a sense in which everyone was right. The crowds were right to welcome Jesus as their Messiah. And the Pharisees were right in their belief that an uprising would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. The crowd were right. Jesus was and is Israel's Messiah. But he didn't come with the mundane agenda of liberating Israel from the Roman. 
he came to liberate the whole of humanity from sin and death. And his method wasn't that of a violent uprising. Uh, Rather, he allowed violence to be done to him. And the Pharisees were right. A violent uprising would have led to the destruction of Jerusalem. And that did, in fact, happen. But it wasn't triggered by Jesus. It was triggered by a Jewish revolt that occurred more than 30 years later. And Jerusalem was, in fact, uh, sacked, completely destroyed by the Romans. It's a horrific episode in Israel's history. So there was great excitement when Jesus entered Jerusalem. But then he went and got himself arrested and whipped and beaten. And he looked rather weak and pathetic, not at all like a conquering king. And the mood changed. If you want to see people get angry, create expectations and then fail to meet them. Of course, the great tragedy of all this is that Jesus far exceeded the crowd's expectations and they simply failed to see it. We know how the story goes, don't we? And we'll be focusing in on it during Holy Week. But suffice to say that the crowd didn't recognize that Jesus not only met their expectations, he surpassed them and they became complicit in his death. Jesus became surplus to requirement, a nuisance, a a dasher of hopes. He got in the way of their perception of freedom. And so they crucified him. And you know what? We, our culture, has expectations of God, which he meets in the fullest way imaginable. And yet we fail to see it. Certainly from conversations I've had, there are three expectations uh, that that come up time and time again. And God meets these expectations, but not necessarily in the way that people want. So what are they? What are the three expectations? Presence, power, and permissiveness. Presence, power, and permissiveness. Firstly, presence. I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard someone say, if God is real, why doesn't he reveal himself? I often wonder whether people who are asking that question want God to reveal himself, or is it another way of saying, well, I can't see God, therefore he's not there, and so I can get on with my life without giving it another thought. But even for those who are desperate for God to reveal himself, first century Israel, for example, God had been silent for 400 years. There'd been no uh, word, no prophets, nothing. The nation had been subdued by the Roman Empire. Uh, the people were desperate. Uh, they longed for their Messiah. But when God showed up in person, he refu- uh, they failed to recognize him. They failed to recognize him. How could an all-powerful God who stands outside of time and space make himself any more present to us than by walking among us. But when God showed up, he refused to follow the script, and so they rejected him and condemned him to death. You know, if Jesus came for the first time today, even though he might perform many miracles that prove that he is divine, he wouldn't be universally accepted, and he certainly wouldn't be universally worshipped. 
worshipping Jesus means ceding control of our lives. It, it, it means we can no longer live in our self-centered little bubble. If a person is not prepared to repent of their sin and selfishness, no amount of proof will change that. Not even meeting God face to face. And that is the tragedy of the human condition. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds had all the, all the signs, all the proof that they needed, and they were willing to sing a psalm of praise as long as Jesus was doing exactly what they wanted. Why doesn't God reveal himself? He has. And he continues to do so for those with eyes to see. We can come into the presence of the living God, uh, but only if we're willing to shed the baggage of pride and self-centeredness. We don't need more proof. We need more humility, which leads to repentance and faith. So our second expectation of God is power. We expect God to be powerful, but usually in the ways that we want him to be. Uh, the question that normally goes with this expectation is, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he put an end, why doesn't he put a stop to evil? But when we talk about evil, uh, we often talk about it as if it's something out there in the world, disconnected, war, violence, famine, abuse, persecution, corruption. Why can't God deal with that stuff? But we fail to see the evil in our own hearts. The pride, the godlessness, the lust, the greed, the self, uh, selfishness. For God to rid the world of evil, he would have to rid the world of all of us. He would have to rid the world of every human being. Why doesn't he do that? Quite simply because he wants to give us every opportunity to turn back to him. Or are we saying that God should only deal with some types of evil, uh, but not all types? I mean, we might say, yeah, I want God to deal with war and poverty, uh, but I don't want him to deal uh, with the darkness in my own heart. Is that what we're saying? I mean, that would be inconsistent, wouldn't it? How could a loving and just God deal with some evil, but not all? When Jesus hung on the cross, this question of power came to the fore. The, the religious people, they mocked Jesus. They said, ah, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? In other words, he's powerless. But God doesn't use his power in the way that we might. If he did, Jesus might well have led an uprising against the Romans. He didn't do that. Instead, he chose to die on a cross. Jesus, who was and is God, absorbed the world's sin and evil and suffering like a big sponge. Why doesn't God put a stop to evil? He has, but not in the way that we might expect. He has found a way to destroy evil without destroying us. And that takes time, and that is why history continues to trundle on. Israel wanted a powerful political and military leader to save them from the evil of their day, namely Roman oppression. Jesus came to do far more than that. He came to pave the world for a, for, sorry, to pave the way for a world that is completely free of every kind of evil. That is the hope that we have 
in Jesus. The final expectation that we have of God is permissiveness. And once again, this expectation is accompanied by a question. And the question goes something like this. Why do we have to do things God's way? Why does he give us so many rules? We want a God who leaves us alone to make our own choices, who gives us permission to do things our way. The people of Israel had a plan for their nation. They envisaged the way that things were were going to go. And when it came down to it, they wouldn't even allow God to interfere with that plan. Fortunately, God had a far greater plan that took account of their hard-heartedness. But all of us have plans that we don't particularly want God to interfere with. We plan our day, and we plan our week, and we plan our lives without stopping to think what God wants from us. We don't ask the question, what is God doing in the world? And how might I join in? We don't want want God getting in the way. We just want a God who rubber stamps our plans, or else we don't want God at all. But just as God is uh, present and powerful, so too we worship a God who is permissive. He's permissive in the sense that he gives us freedom to choose. Ironically, many people reject God because they think he will limit their freedom. The very fact that we can reject God reveals the extent of the freedom that he's given us. We are free to ignore God and do things our own way, but that will not lead to peace. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he wept and he said, if you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? And he goes on to describe the, the terrible events that would later befall Jerusalem. Uh, we, we, we do have the freedom to choose to reject Jesus, but that choice leads to terrible consequences. The world longs for peace, but it looks for it in all the wrong places. It's no coincidence that for all our technology, our learning and advancement, the world is no more peaceful today than it was in Jesus' day. But we live in a very individualistic society. So let's for a minute uh, just look at this from an individual perspective. We demand presence, yet we refuse to welcome Jesus into our lives. We demand power, but we want God to exercise his power in a way that seems right to us. And we don't seek to understand the way that God is at work in the world. We demand permissiveness. In other words, we just want God to leave us alone and get on with things our way. And he will, if that's what we choose. But it will not lead to peace. If we reject Jesus, there is no relationship, career, exercise routine, self-help program, material possession, experience, religion or philosophy that will lead to lasting peace. Our designer lives free from Jesus, will not bring us peace. Our way is not the way of peace. The crowd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as king, but they turned against him when he wasn't doing what they thought he should. They rejected Jesus and chose instead a path that eventually led to the destruction of that great city. Their way was not the way of peace. So it's Palm Sunday. And we've sung praises to Jesus. 
Are we willing to follow Jesus even when he doesn't meet our expectations in the way that we might hope? Are we prepared to lay aside our designer lives, our individualism, our consumerism, our materialism for the sake of Jesus? Are we willing to take the narrow path, the harder path? Are we ready to follow Jesus into trouble, controversy, trial and death? Because that has been the reality for many Christians throughout history. And it remains a reality for many millions of Christians in the world today. It's not our reality, but it could be if we were being born in another part of the world. Are we willing to choose Jesus? Are we willing to choose peace? Peace about life, no matter how hard it might be. Peace about death, no matter when that comes to us. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that comes from knowing the presence and power of Christ in our lives. Will we choose that way of peace today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that so often we can be like the crowds uh, that met your son Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. We sing a psalm of praise. We get excited. But only as long as you're doing exactly what we want. Only as long as things are going our way. Father, help us to break out of this way of thinking. Help us to put our complete trust in you. No matter what's going on in our lives. No matter what's going on in the world. We pray, Father, that we will choose the way of peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.